Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I've got to admit, I'm joined by one of my favorite guests, Dave Feldman. Now, we've already interviewed Dave Feldman before, and I've interviewed him before when I was doing my prior podcast. And I'm a bit of a lipid nerd. I love lipidology. I love cholesterol. And that's where Dave really is on the forefront of the lipidology community, which is a little surprising because he's not a doctor. He's not a scientist. He's not a nutritionist. He's an engineer. But he's one of these engineers who's become a citizen scientist. But he's doing more than just his N of 1 experiment. He is engaging the community. And now, as we're going to hear something very exciting in this podcast, that he has orchestrated a study and is ready to start begin enrolling a study on lean mass hyperresponders. So stay tuned for that. We get to that about halfway through the episode where you can hear more about this. But what is lean mass hyperresponder? Let's start with that. Basically, it's an elevation in LDL cholesterol that happens when someone's following a low-carb diet. Now, as we discuss, there's a lot of discrepancy in within the cardiology world, within the lipid world, um, that you have to assume all elevated LDL is dangerous, or is this a special circumstance where maybe it's not dangerous? And we have to be honest that we don't know, right? We don't have the data for that. And that's where Dave is really trying to make a difference to get us that data, which is so exciting. But he's got his lipid hypothesis, which if you haven't, if, if, if this is your first exposure to Dave, I recommend you go to cholesterolcode.com. He's got an introductory um, video about the energy hypothesis. But the overall concept is when you're burning fat for fuel, when you're eating keto, low carb, your body is burning fat and triglycerides for fuel, you need that fuel to be trafficked somehow in your blood. Triglycerides just don't float in your blood. Well, so it's going to start from your liver into VLDLs, which are a lipoprotein that can deliver the triglycerides where they need to go and IDLs as well, but the, eventually they become LDLs. So that's the hypothesis for why there are so many more LDLs in these hyperresponders because they are using the triglycerides. They need the triglycerides and they need the lipoproteins, the little boats to transport the triglycerides within your blood. That's a simplistic overview. Again, you can learn more at cholesterolcode.com, but I think it's important for you to understand so you'll understand the concepts that we talk about in this interview. Now, we're going to talk about lean mass hyperresponders. We're going to talk about his study. We're also going to get into the role of insulin and how that impacts LDL receptors. We're going to talk about his um, new venture, ownyourlabs.com, and how you can take advantage of that to get lab tests that maybe you can't get in other ways. And we even venture outside of lipidology a little bit to talk about glucose and insulin and the response to low-carb diets, whether you're under-eating calories or over-eating calories. So we go through a lot, but the main emphasis here is on his exciting news about his upcoming study. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dave Feldman. Well, Dave Feldman, welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. Thank you for having me, Brent. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. I I appreciate any chance to have a conversation with you. And as people have heard in the introduction, that really this whole concept of LDL and low-carb and keto lifestyles it can be confusing for a lot of people. And, and I want to start by saying, I, you know, when I give talks on this and when I talk to other doctors about it, I frequently cite papers and meta-analyses that show on average for the majority of people who follow a low-carb and keto diet that LDL does not go up on average. Now, that's on average. Now, obviously, there are some extremes where they do go up and they, when they when it may even go down, LDL may even go down. Now, you more than anybody have been on the forefront of really 
promoting this idea and talking about this idea of hyper responders where LDL does go up on a low carb diet. So the first question, and this is a hard question to answer, I know, do you have any idea how frequent or what the percentages of people on a keto diet who see a dramatic rise in their LDL cholesterol? I feel like I do. And I actually believe a lot of the data already exists in front of us between looking at, for example, the data set that comes from Verda, which I'm sure you've talked not only a lot about, but you've interviewed many who discuss it at length. And that of, say, the data sets you see with uh, Volek and Finney, who the, the first group tends to be those who are dealing with obesity and severe type 2 diabetes, Whereas the second group tends to be people who are very athletic, who are very metabolically flexible. Uh, oftentimes, they are more likely cyclists or uh, weightlifters, et cetera. And I think it's important to first differentiate those two groups, because here's what I think happened, Brett, a while ago. As Atkins became big, it was being used by many people who were in that first group, who were looking to lose weight and were willing to do a lot of things that were against the guidelines, such as consuming a lot of saturated fat while dropping down the carbs. And in my mind, I kind of think of this as the first wave. The first wave are those people for which they have a lot of reason to just try something very different when a lot of other things weren't working for them before. And I now consider a lot of the second wave, a lot of particularly younger, particularly more athletic, people who already were probably in a fairly good metabolic light adopting a ketogenic diet, it's a disproportionately larger number of that second population that sees a quote-unquote hyper response. So in a way, I kind of agree with you in that if you're looking at the population as a whole, and this changes as keto becomes more and more popular, but as you look at it as a whole, a lot of the people who are looking to lose weight because they were in a bad way, if you will, uh, don't see as much of this hyper response. But as it becomes more popular, again, with those who are younger, who are more athletic, I think you're going to see more. Yeah, and that's a great point because the studies that I'm quoting and the studies that are out there in the literature are in people who are overweight, are in people who have type 2 diabetes and people who are trying to lose weight. It's not in these young, healthy, athletic populations. So we're not going to be able to find them as much in the literature, but you sure have found them and they're finding you because at cholesterolcode.com is where you have probably one of the biggest collections of people um, communicating with you, sharing their information, sharing their numbers. So you've really been on the forefront of, of bringing this to light. And I think because of that, you've probably also gotten a little bit of pushback from the medical community for a couple of reasons. And we can break this down, but one is, and for people who are not watching on YouTube, I'm doing air quotes here. You are just an engineer, right? You're not a doctor. You're not a scientist. You're not a clinician. You're just an engineer. Um, but the other hand, what you're talking about and proposing flies in the face of what's been taught in lipidology for decades, right? That every elevated LDL is a concern, is a risk, and needs to be treated aggressively. We don't have any evidence to suggest to the contrary. Therefore, um, you're, everybody's crazy to say that, that it's not potentially harmful. So those are two different things. So I'm curious what kind of pushback, that's my perception of the pushback you've gotten. So I'm curious what, you're, what the pushback really has been with your proposal for this, um, for this new concept of why we have a lean mass hyperresponder and whether it's of concern. Well, and before we get off that last point, I just wanted to mention real quick, it's not only young people who see a hyper response. Uh, even though it's more 
younger people who are more likely to be metabolically healthy and for who we, for which we'll see the hyper response of. We have plenty of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s who are this hyper responder population. So now to get to your point on whether or not high LDL is independently uh, associated with atherosclerosis, and the, perhaps the best way to put this is in any context. Right now, conventional medicine, uh, especially starting with the work of Brown and Goldstein, going back to the early 70s, they had a seminal patient. It was a three-year-old little girl, heartbreaking story. She had uh, something known as xanthomas, which are deposits of cholesterol in the extremities and also developed her first angina at age three. Hmm. Her LDL cholesterol was somewhere in the 700s. And by age six, she unfortunately had her first MI, her first heart attack, a myocardial infarction. Now, from their perspective, and it's understandable why they would come to this conclusion, because she didn't have many of these other risk factors that are normally associated with cardiovascular disease, waist to height, you know, or waist to hip ratio, high blood pressure, all of these other things that you would normally associate. It seemed to be very uh, compelling to take that as an indicator that this was in fact the causal initiator. High LDL is what was causing this. So up until this point in time, Brett, really, truly, you could not get to LDL levels comparable to others who have this disease, familial hypercholesterolemia, genetically confirmed familial hypercholesterolemia, without, without having the disease. If you didn't have the genetics to make it happen, you were not going to get to LDL levels at that, uh, at that degree. And that's a cornerstone of the lipid hypothesis, but that's changed just in recent years. Now there's a fairly sizable population. And as you mentioned, yes, a lot of people come to find me. We now have Facebook groups that have 7,000 each, 7,000 in a cholesterol code Facebook group, 7,000 in a lean mass hyperresponder Facebook group. And let me define real quick what a lean mass hyperresponder is. You've talked about hyperresponders. That's basically anybody who sees their cholesterol go up substantially. Lean mass hyperresponders incorporate what I often refer to as the low-carb lipid triad. Triad as in it's three things together. High LDL, high HDL, and low triglycerides. And lean mass hyperresponders have an LDL cut point, 200 milligrams per deciliter or higher, an HDL cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol, of 80 milligrams per deciliter or higher, and triglycerides of 70 milligrams per deciliter or lower. And when this got identified, this phenotype, got identified uh, in my first article going back to 2017, I really had no idea how many there would be. I thought it was just, you know, surprisingly a few more uh, than I thought initially. And then after I released that article, it became the most commented article on cholesterolcode.com. It turns out that it's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. And it crosses ages, all ages, all ethnicities, um, and uh, all genders. Like it's it's incredible just how common this is. Now, Getting back to the pushback, I do have something that I don't think we're going to get to talk about a lot, but it's the lipid energy model. I've done lots of talks on it. It can get a bit complex, but it's what I posit as to be the reason for the higher LDL. And I think that this is a different reason than what we see with those who have genetically high LDL and that it can be very relevant as to the possible risk of the high LDL. 
Yeah, and I think that's a great point to to compare and contrast it to familial hypercholesterolemia, like you started this answer with that story, which is a, a genetic condition where LDL is sky high. And it happens because there's a problem with the LDL receptors, that the receptors cannot clear the LDL. That's sort of like the, the simple explanation. There are a couple of different specifics, but that's the simple explanation, that the receptors can't clear the LDL. So what you're proposing, though, is that it happens in low-carb, lean mass hyperresponders for a completely different reason, and therefore we cannot treat it the same. But for physicians who are unfamiliar with your work or for physicians who are unfamiliar with low carb, the only LDL above 190 that they know of is familial hypercholesterolemia. So they will assume that any LDL above 190 is FH and needs to be treated. And that's exactly what the guidelines say. It's not just individual physicians, but that's what the guidelines of the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, pretty much any guideline is going to say that. So by you proposing something different, you are proposing something that goes against all the established medical and cardiovascular guidelines. And that's that's a big thing that puts a target on your back. And I know you've gone to National Lipid Association meetings. You've, you're, you've done so much to... Um, engage the community, uh, the lipid community, and learn about it. And I got to imagine people just think you're crazy because let's be honest, like doctors aren't always the most open-minded people for um, hypotheses and opinions that go contrary to what they believe. So have you gotten that kind of pushback? And if so, I mean, what is the little, you know, in the back of your brain, do you have that little voice that says, what if I'm wrong? Like, what if this is not right? Well, first of all, that voice is always there. And and it should be emphasized that I definitely could be wrong. Even though I have a phrase that you know I like to use often, which is just two words, I like to say I'm cautiously optimistic. In the context of high LDL, as seems to be coming from being fat adapted, that's also an acknowledgement of uncertainty. I don't know for sure. And I've appreciated where everybody has been able to maintain a position comparable to mine where they say, you know what, I have a good feeling about it, but at the same time, we really need clinical data to take us to the next step. A lot of the anecdotal data, I will say, I've appreciated it. A lot of it looks good. I can't say that it's 100%, but that's because we're in a situation, which is often the case in so many of these uh, circumstances where you're looking for certain patterns and you're trying to make yourself look for the other patterns that oppose your view. But in spite of all of that, you cannot help that there's some amount of selection bias. And this happens with everybody. Everybody has their own confirmation bias that they're trying to fight against. I try to engage, yes, with the NLA, National Lipid Association, and other cardiologists as often as possible. And I can say that I've managed to make some really good friends with people who feel I'm definitely wrong. Conversely, there are quite a lot who are not as interested in having this discussion. But this is an important discussion to have, Brett. This is really kind of a crucial time because while I know there are a lot of people who have long before I came around been skeptical and probably would be whether I was around or not, there are a number of people who are thriving uniquely on a ketogenic diet, specifically on being very low carb, that have existing conditions for which it ends up being especially important for them. Epileptics. Uh, certain type 1 diabetics, certain people with uh, severe um, digestive tract issues. I know a lot of these people because a lot of them reach out to me, and a lot of these same people are not comfortable with their high LDL. They're stressed out about it. Their mm -hmm. doctor's stressed out about it. Their family's stressed out mm -hmm. about it. And they 
have gone through multiple means of taking steps to lower it. But at the same time, they're struggling with their own doubts. They're saying, is this really going to be that important? And that's why we need clinical data, again, more than we've ever had before, because it's those people who we should get an answer for. Yeah. And I'm really excited to talk to you about the upcoming clinical data that we should be getting soon. But I'm going to leave a teaser there, and we're going to circle back to that. Um, for, but for now, this concept of, and you've said this before, you say it so well, that sort of they're, it's a, they're broken systems. Not You look for the broken system, not just sort of the lab value. I'm poorly paraphrasing what you've said, so you can clarify. But the point being that when you're studying a general population, you know, I like to say all you have to do is look around when you walk to the airport or when you're in any crowded area in America to say you don't want to be average. You don't want to be normal. You don't want to be the general person because it's, un it's an unhealthy person, metabolically unhealthy, overweight, um, with likely high triglycerides and low HDL. So when you, when you look at data that is from that population, you can say it's not, not necessarily going to apply to everybody. But then where's the burden of proof? Is the burden of proof to say, well, we have this data in the general population that higher LDL correlates with higher risk of cardiovascular disease, period, full, you know, full stop. In the general population, that data is pretty strong. Now, you could argue about the degree of risk correlation, but the, the association is there. So is the burden of proof to say, well, we don't think it applies to everybody, so we're going to go out and prove it? Or is the burden of proof to say, well, look, this subset of people haven't been studied, so you need to prove that it's dangerous in this subset of people. Where do you think the burden of proof is there? You know, it's interesting. This, this topic comes up a lot, and often what's posited is, hey, we have so much data across so many lines of evidence that there's really no reason to do any further study on a new emerging population that has high LDL. We can safely assume that it is deleterious, that it is of a high risk. Now, my pushback, and I feel it's very valid pushback, is we should look to the Bradford Hill criteria. Bradford Hill criteria is special because it has nine assessments, and a couple of them I'm especially keen on, one of those being specificity and the other being consistency. And the value of specificity is whenever you can find a way to look at an intervention of interest, absent all other things that impact that same endpoint you're wanting to look at that intervention against. Let me put that in layman's terms, which is, wait a sec, are there other cardiovascular risk markers that are often in play at the same time that you're looking at high LDL? Well, yes, there actually are. For example, the two other markers I mentioned that are part of the triad, HDL cholesterol and triglycerides. Many, I'm sure of your listeners already know this to be the case, that if your HDL is low, that's a cardiovascular risk. If your triglycerides are high, that's a cardiovascular risk. And actually, long before I got into this space, there already was a profile for when HDL is low and triglycerides are high, alongside a preponderance of small dense LDL particles, and it's known as atherogenic dyslipidemia. And that profile is a much higher cardiovascular risk association than just LDL alone. So it begs the question, or at least it should have, even going back to the 90s, why not look at those people who have high LDL? who do not have atherogenic dyslipidemia. In fact, preferably who have the opposite. Look at those people who have high HDL and low triglycerides. And as you know, I've sought and found every single study I could 
that show this and that data is limited. But of the data that there is, it does show that there is a low cardiovascular risk association, even in spite of the high LDL, if your HDL is high and your triglycerides are low. Yeah. And there are, there are quite a few studies um, uh, that show that. Now, not as many studies as there are on the opposite side of LDL, but those are sort of indiscriminate studies that don't don't break it down from that standpoint. And there's also a recent paper about the women's health study that sh- that looked at what were the biggest predictors of developing cardiovascular disease. And with an odds ratio, I apologize, I should have looked it up. I think it was 1.6 was the odds ratio for LDL. Um, whereas having type 2 diabetes has an odds ratio of 10. And having met, uh, this met, this insulin resistance sorry, lipoprotein insulin resistance panel that was elevated had a, had a risk of six. So the metabolic markers had much higher risk than LDL itself. Not that LDL wasn't associated, it clearly was, but on a much lower level. And also apolipoprotein B or ApoB was much higher than LDL itself. So I guess there are a couple things in that statement that one is metabolic health in this population, in the women's health study population, certainly was a bigger risk factor. So why aren't we considering that more and how that interacts with LDL? And then two is, why are we talking about LDL at all instead of ApoB? So run with that for a little bit. Okay, well, two things. One, yes, and getting back to your original point, I would like to say, hey, now let's take the same women's health, like if I had that data right now, I'd go, that's great. Now let's stratify. Let's try to take out everybody who had a high LDL and then take away anybody who had the corresponding metabolic health risk factors because I posit, getting back to the broken systems analogy you brought up earlier, which I like to bring up, how do we know that there aren't, say, metabolic dysregulations that can also result in high LDL? It's worth emphasizing exactly what I mean when I say this. Is it possible that, for example, atherogenic dyslipidemia? the same condition that results in low HDL and high triglycerides, which I know you see a lot in your patients with severe type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. How do we know that doesn't likewise have a marginal increase in LDL, given you see a, a likewise increase in small LDL particles? That's a question I want to posit. So in other words, before you can say A causes B, you need to confirm two things for sure. You need to confirm B doesn't in some way cause A. You need to be sure that there isn't some other thing, some C or D or E or et cetera, that causes both. So we need to confirm what's often called in literature pleiotropy. And the best way to do it is to try to find a population or even retrospectively look back in data and stratify for a population for which all of those things that are higher risk markers, higher risk factors are taken away so that you're looking at just the intervention or the exposure of interest. That's why I think, Brett, lean mass hyperresponders hold the key to so much more that we can learn about about not only LDL and its causality, but just about metabolism itself. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective about studying that specific population, that specific area that weeds out the rest. And that's what you're supposed to do in randomized controlled trials is find a way to isolate the variable you're trying to, to talk about. But nobody in and not for any fault of their own, but lipid researchers, cholesterol researchers, to this point, haven't thought about that. They've just taken all comers and all lip, you know, all dyslipidemia is basically the same. And um, 
maybe that's that's an oversimplification, but I think you bring up a great point about the need to factor that out. Now, the other part though to talk about is, you know, ApoB is starting to get its moment in the sun, and uh, Peter Atia has been talking about it. Thomas Dayspring has been talking about it. And now the guidelines are starting to favor ApoB over LDL because, I mean, let's be honest, it's a better marker. So um, what do you think about um, a better marker in terms of risk prediction, um, but still not doesn't completely answer the question because it still can track with metabolic dysfunction. So what are your thoughts on ApoB and its utility? Is it better than LDL? How does it fit into lean mass hyperresponder? Give us your thoughts on ApoB. I'm certainly very opinionated on this subject. And actually, you can look at my talks going back a few years ago. I discussed something known as remnants. And the best way to describe remnants is remnants are those lipoproteins, generally speaking, that are not LDL. So when we're talking about ApoB, Let's go through the lineage of what is ApoB. First of all, it's effectively every lipoprotein that's not HDL or one that we're not going to talk about too much generally here, which is um, uh, LP little a, even though it's kind of ApoB, but set that aside for a moment. ApoB lineage is generally going to be triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, generally, that are rapidly dropping off their triglyceride cargo and I like to say that's sort of their first job, and it's a short-term job. It's supposed to happen very quickly. So if they succeed at dropping off their triglycerides into peripheral tissues, they remodel to something smaller. And in the case of those that come from your gut, they're called chylomicrons. They become chylomicron remnants. They're cleared right away. But for those that come from your liver, they're VLDL. Those are the triglyceride-rich version of ApoB that will remodel down to IDL, intermediate density lipoproteins. Those can sometimes be taken away, but roughly half of them will then remodel to LDL. Now, all of those that I've just mentioned right now, they all have exactly one apolipoprotein, ApoB. The problem I have is that now, by focusing more on ApoB, you're lumping together the remnants with the LDL. This is a huge problem, and let me explain why, and this gets back to broken systems. I posited for a long time, and I continue to do so, that I believe that when you're seeing high triglycerides and low HDL, what you're likely seeing is a systemic problem. There's a problem in the utilization of the triglycerides on your lipoproteins, and that can result in the higher relative amount of ApoB that's resident in those, those uh, remnants. So the population of remnants hardly needs to move. It just barely increases in its association with cardiovascular risk is huge. And I realize a lot of people are going to go, oh, so they're the problem. Remnants are the problems. Uh, so it's yet one more reason to just bring down ApoB altogether. And the engineer in me is going to push back on that. It's going to say, no, actually, I think you still need to get to the root issue. And the root issue is what's causing this dysregulation in the first place. But unfortunately, by focusing on ApoB, what we're doing is we're moving away from the specificity, not toward it. Hmm. Rather, if you're going to look at ApoB, then look directly at remnants. The remnants are going to have that huge association with cardiovascular disease risk. That matter, for goodness sakes, let's look at what helps to result in the higher levels of remnants and confirm whether or not that's the true root cause. Yeah, so great point. So ApoB in the general population 
is a better marker of risk than LDL, but again, in the general population, there's likely going to be a high percentage of remnants uh, which are ABOB-containing particles. But like you, you've mentioned in this lean mass hyper-responder group, they tend to have very low remnants. So even ApoB is sort of not going to be that have the same accuracy because if the assumption is elevated ApoB goes along with elevated remnants, that assumption falls apart for the hyper-responders. That's correct. In fact, if you were to look at it strictly from a remnant versus LDL perspective, so specifically non-LDL ApoB, versus LDL ApoB, you are likely going to find that they probably have the lowest ratio there is. Like I don't know of any population that has that low of remnants against that high of LDL. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the concept of VLDL, which is really the remnant most people know about because it's the one that, can, that does show up on some lab reports. It's pretty rare to see IDL, but people see VLDL. Uh, it's been an ignored um, value, I think, for throughout well, throughout throughout history for clinical practice that people really don't pay attention to VLDL because sort of the assumption is again everybody's the same but now it might be one of the big determining factors of when people are not the same and as much as you've called attention to lean mass hyperresponders i think you've also called attention to remnants in VLDL and so more clinicians are are learning from that and that's one one kind of shout out i need to give you i i i sort of seriously and jokingly said you're quote just an engineer but i think so many clinicians sort of owe you a debt that you've brought up these topics that people didn't understand before and you've brought it to light that now more clinicians understand VLDL and remnants and more clinicians understand the importance of HDL and triglycerides, but we still need data to move this field forward. So now that brings me back to my teaser. So I'm coming back full circle like I promised. We need more data. You've been on the forefront of, of saying that we need more data. But now I heard from a little birdie that you've got some exciting announcements for us today. I do. And Brett, uh, I get to share. I think I've not shared this publicly before, but you actually had a little bit of a part to do with this origin story. So let's go back roughly like three years ago. I was discussing then, and it was just about a year after the um, lean mass hyperspotter article, I was starting to realize because there's such a key we really need to have a study. We need to have a study of risk with this unique population. And you were the first person I approached on seeing your cardiologist, and you might have a lot of uh, potential in helping me uh, put together the funds and the study to make this happen. And so for a while, you and I were discussing it and trying to work it out, but uh, you also had a lot of other responsibilities at that time. You certainly do now, <laughs> being the uh, the medical director over at uh, Diet Doctor. But we tried to go the private route for a good year and a half. I tried to raise money directly through private donors. I tried to go through the quote-unquote official channels. Uh, I tried to get grants, etc. And then after a year and a half, I kind of just threw my arms up in the air and decided to do something that to this day I'm still surprised I did, which is on a Houston stage in uh, October of 2019, I believe, I said, hey, low-carb community, I want to just crowdfund this study on lean mass hyperresponders. And I knew at that time I was going to be asking for a fairly large sum of money. But you have to understand Kickstarter campaigns and technology, they have a cap that they recommend. Don't ask for anything more than 50000 That's already a huge ask. 
and make sure you have, you know, some kind of product or some kind of service or event that they get free tickets for, or they get free swag or something. And no, what I was going to say was actually 50,000 is the floor. What I really want is a couple hundred thousand because I imagine it's going to be roughly $2,000 per lean mass hyperresponder. And I want a hundred lean mass hyperresponders for this study. And a year and a half later, we're funded. So let me first thank the community. The community stepped up. A lot of people reached in deep to uh, get their funds out to actually make this study. A lot of people believed in this, and I, I can't, I can't even express, Brett, how exciting it is that this actually worked. And naturally, I have to also thank a lot of the team that I'm about to introduce you and your listeners to, if they didn't already know. That includes doctors Spencer Nadowski and Tommy Wood. Uh, Spencer Nadowski is a bit more colorful than I am, and not necessarily known always favorably within the low carb community, but I have to tell you, it's been a delight to work with him. And part of why I wanted to work with him was because he has a differing opinion than I do. Even though I'm cautiously optimistic, I've actually wanted to find somebody who's cautiously pessimistic, but for whom we could agree a lot on the foundation of how to do the study. And that's something I found in Spencer Nadalski. Tommy Woods, kind of the center between the two of us, <laughs> but that's what I love. I love that we're a mixed team. Now, what I do get to also mention for the first time in any podcast is that I can now reveal who the center, the center is that we're going to be doing this through and who the principal investigator is we're doing it under, and it's Dr. Matt Budoff. And I don't know if you know him or his work. Of course I do. Yeah, that is awesome. He's amazing. I don't, I don't get to meet a lot of scientists who have papers on their name in the four figures. I'll just <laughs> I'll say that that just doesn't happen. But part of uh, the credit goes to Spencer Nadowski for making the introduction. He is, of course, a foremost expert. Many would say the expert on CT angiogram imaging. And that was crucial for our study design, because basically, here's the gist of the study. Yeah, please. we want to get 100 lean mass hyperresponders to fly to the Institute. The center is the Lundquist Institute. And it's there that they will get a full physical and a scan, and they will uh, be captured in whatever month that is. Then again, at 12 months later. So it's longitudinal is what they call it, where you get scanned at one point, and then there's a follow-up. And in this case, one year later, we'll get a second scan, and then we'll be able to do a comparison between these CT angiograms, which are high-resolution scans of the cardiovascular system, and I mean, it gets impressively detailed. I actually didn't realize until we started talking to Matt just how detailed it can get. And it's worth noting that at the time you and I were talking about it, and then eventually as we were setting up the study uh, with uh, Spencer and Tommy, we thought it would be a five-year study. Yeah. It's actually Dr. Matt Budoff who brought it to our attention, no, actually one year is more than enough given both the resolution of these CT angiograms and the exposure size because of just how high the LDL is for these lean mass hyperresponders, we should absolutely see a progressive level. And this brings me back to going all the way back to the 70s, going back to that seminal patient that Brown and Goldstein were looking at. If given that in just three years, we were able to see such a rapid progression of atherosclerosis, at scale, 
given the existing lipid hypothesis, we should see that same level of progression, not necessarily at the same level at the same um, LDL, but even for an LDL of 200 or 250 or 300, that signal should be detectable. Yeah, it's such a great story. I mean, and I, I, I actually like the history part that, you know, we started talking about this. I remember those conversations. And I also remember getting really frustrated and thinking like, I don't see how this is going to happen. One, because, and I know you had the same concern, like what IRB is going to approve this, right? Because the concept now is if LDL is above 190, it is unethical to not give that person statin. Like you could see that based on the guidelines that that could be an approach that everybody deserves a statin at that level, period, because that's what the guidelines say. And if you want to go against that, there's going to be a lot of pushback. So since we were having trouble finding funding, and that was in the back of my mind, I was pretty pe pessimistic that there was going to be a good quality study. But now you've done it. Like now you're at the, you're almost at the starting line. You basically are at the starting line to say, we've got the funding. We've, we've got the PI, a very prominent PI in Dr. Budoff. We've got the institution in LA. And, and we're ready to go. I mean, that's, so you deserve a huge pat on the back. So again, when I say you're just an engineer for you to be able to orchestrate this kind of study and spearhead the study with teammates, of course, but to get to this point, just, just, you deserve a huge amount of credit for that. So it's going to be lean mass hyper responders flying to the center in Los Angeles to get your CT angiogram and then a follow-up at a year. Now I've got to be honest though, when you said it was a year, I was a little surprised by that because part of me thinks you know, take Spencer as an example, or any of the prominent lipidologists, if they see one year data, you know, are they going to say, okay, I guess it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. We, I, you know, it's okay to, to not treat this one subset. Like I can't, I can't see one year data really moving the needle for them. Now for people who have lean mass hyperresponders, for low carb doctors, for people who, whose biases that they want this to be true, I can see one year data being pretty powerful, but for the other group, um, who is already has their mind made up that this can't be true, that it has to be dangerous. I can't see one year data really making a difference. So I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are there. Yeah. So we need to first acknowledge that there's going to be groups on both sides of the fence. There's going to be a lot of people who are entrenched for which the data can either prove to confirm their biases or it's irrelevant to them. And that's not really so much what the study is for. Second, it, we're going to emphasize this all the way through. This is a pilot study. We know that there are things that we really couldn't do uh, with this first study that we know we could do with later studies, potentially, depending on what that data turns around. A good example yeah. is, and acknowledging it, uh, we have the limitation of we don't have a control group. And part of that is because we really couldn't easily come up with one. For one, we couldn't turn people into lean mass hyperresponders. Even if my lipid energy model is right, even if it turns out that yes, if you put enough of these lean folks on a low carb diet and a high preponderance of them become lean mass hyperresponders, what IRB is gonna say, cool, now let that go for a year and then we'll test at the end. No, that wasn't realistically gonna happen in a randomized way. Conversely, we knew we couldn't get existing lean mass hyperresponders at a sizable number to randomly come off the diet. As I mentioned before, a lot of the people who are, either are because they've already committed to it and they're just not that interested in changing their lifestyle anyway, or they are because they have existing conditions that led them to that. But if there's a lead in time, and what we're requiring is that you have to have been 
one of these lean mass hyperresponders for at least uh, two years or more, then that's already going to be a population that was already fairly committed to it. I should mention this real quick because I mentioned earlier what the qualifications were conventionally in the article I mentioned from 2017. Our lean mass hyperresponder cut points are different for this study. So the LDL is now 190 and above. The HDL needs to be 60 and above. And triglycerides need to be 80 and below. Each of those are slightly more borderline from what the original definition of lean mass hyperresponder is. I'm sure people listening to this right now are in thinking, oh, can I qualify? Can I be part of the study? So you mentioned those three lipid criteria, and then you mentioned they have to be, they have to have that for two years. So let me put it this way. Those are the cut points that you need to be at right now. Like at your most recent lipid panel, those should be the cut points that you're at at least. Now, for those people who need to qualify, we need to confirm that they don't have this genetic disease of familial hypercholesterolemia before having gone low carb. So presumably, as is often the case, you will have had lower lipid levels before you started. And do we, we have cut points for that as well. You have to have an LDL of 160 milligrams per deciliter or below before you had started this. No cut point requirements for HDL and triglycerides. However, whatever your LDL was before, again, with, with certainty that needs to be 160 or below, it needs to have increased at least 50% or more. So whatever that first number is, the second number needs to be 50% or more of uh, that number. So mm -hmm. sorry if I'm not articulating this too well. Whatever the last test was before you started the diet, we're going to be comparing that with your most recent test. And your most recent test should have that over 50% difference in order for you to be you know, part of the population of interest for us. Now, there are other qualifications that I really can't get into. We'd want to direct you to, uh, you'll, I'm sure you'll include the number for us down below to contact the Lundquist Institute and express your interest in becoming a candidate. But they generally revolve around making sure that you are a healthy candidate. We want to we actually get people who are in good metabolic health and who do not have an existing history of disease. So is that the best way then for people to do it? If they say, I wanna be in this study, they, they call the phone number? I mean, that seems like so 1980s. There's not like a website, there's no someplace to go, it's, it's a phone number? By this point, we will have had across all of our social media, the flyer, there's a flyer that's gonna have these same things I just mentioned now, and also the phone number. So you may wanna okay. take a look at the flyer first before you call. Uh, just so you don't overwhelm the the poor staff there. But uh, yeah, the, the flyer should give you everything you know for the the entry point into the screening call. Well, I think this is so exciting. And I know there are so many people who want to participate in this. And and that's one thing that I've seen in this community is is that people want to know the answer, right? I mean, sure, there are people who are whose mind is closed that this is fine, I'm not gonna worry about it, just as there are people whose mind is closed that this is terrible and nothing's gonna change my mind. But I think the majority of people are in that middle ground wanting to know the answer. And like you said, with the anecdotal experience we have, the people who are lean mass hyper responders generally love their lifestyle and they feel great in their lifestyle and they don't wanna change. So they wanna look for information to tell them it's okay. But at the same time, they don't wanna have a heart attack either. They don't wanna be at higher risk either. So. So I think you're going to have a lot of people who really want to participate because they want to help forward the science on this and get the answer done. And I also like how you said, look, this is a pilot study and people need to understand that this is frequently how research works. 
your first study out of the gate on a topic isn't a 5,000 person study with a 5,000 you know, people in control, randomized study that lasts 10 years. You don't, you don't get that study right out of the gate. You need proof of concept studies, pilot studies, which then let you get more um, funding and let you get more academic interest and other centers and more people involved. And most importantly, to, to let those people know who say, who would say, I think this is unethical, who, I, who would say all oh, LDL is dangerous, to make them say, huh, okay, maybe this doesn't prove it, but it, it raises the flag enough to say, all right, we need to learn more. And so if this study just accomplishes that, I think it's a huge victory. So that's what I think. But what do you think is a, the definition of victory from the study? Or what do you hope to get out of this study? I got to be honest, the thing that drives me probably more than anything else are those patients that I just mentioned a little bit earlier. A lot of them come to me daily. And as much as I lay it on thick that I'm not a medical professional, and even if I'm cautiously optimistic, you know, there's still uncertainty. That's why we need this clinical data for them. I, I know that I just yesterday, I talked to a 60-year-old, 62-year-old female epileptic who has, and she's tried so many different things to get around this, but she seems to have a level of intolerance towards carbs that seem almost like a peanut allergy that mm. it's, it's so if she, she has to be aware of when she goes out, because if there's even things cooked on the same grill for which it could pick up a certain amount of carbs, she, she'll start seeing the halos and she'll be like flattened for a few days. Um, and again, I don't know how much of, all I know is that for people like her, she has, because of just how low carb she is, her LDL is correspondingly extremely high. She's very lean. She's very low carb. Again, I know you have patients like that. I know you know so many doctors who are low carbers who have patients. And it's those clinicians too that I care so much about this with because there's there's a bunch of clinicians who I think will feel that it's still a risk factor, that LDL is a risk factor, but they want to know by how much. Mm -hmm. So right now, if you have an LDL that's in say the top one or 2% of the population, it's absolutely understandable if you're a clinician and you say, I, until I can at least know in roughly what area of risk category you are, such as like dividing it into thirds, I think makes it really easy. Right now it's presumed you're in the top third. How could you not be in the highest okay. LDL? You're going to be in the, in the top third of risk for cardiovascular disease. But what if there was a context that you now knew about for which you could be in the top two or 3% of LDL levels for the population and yet be in the bottom third risk category? Even if you yourself thought, you know what, you could be a little bit better if your LDL were lower. You and I both know a lot of clinicians would be like, no, nah, that's good enough. <laughs> if you're in the bottom third, I'm not going to push my pay any more than you would push your patient to get an extra hour of walking a day if you thought that made that much of a hair splitting difference between, you know, optimal versus suboptimal. That's, that's the kind of at least out of the park uh, measurements we're going to hopefully be able to get some sense of. And to be sure, we're talking atherosclerosis progression. We don't exactly know how much it, it can convert to risk, but we can infer quite a bit from the atherosclerotic progression 
uh, as to what the risk will likely be. Yeah, and such a great point that I, I'm kicking myself now that in my mind, I know it's not the way to think of it, but the way I've been talking about it is like it's a risk or it's not. Like it's a switch, you turn on or you turn off. But that's not the case at all. As with anything, it's a it's a spectrum of risk. And I really like how you said that. Group it into thirds, think about it from a different perspective. Could you be at the highest level of LDL but not at the highest risk? And that is the right way to think about it, not like the on or off switch, like I've been sort of phrasing it. So I apologize for phrasing it that way, and thank you for clarifying. Uh, I think that's really important. And the other the other perspective that I think you've brought so nicely is that it's not just, I don't know, the, the stereotypically like the biohackers, you know, like the the bro science, biohackers, whatever you want to call it. I don't even know the right term because I hate those stereotypes, but people doing this like just for the sake of doing it. No, there are some people doing keto because they need to for so many other health reasons. And for those people who don't have an option you know, we can talk about how to lower your LDL if it's elevated on keto, but for some people who don't really necessarily have an option to change their diet that much, this is so important for them as well. Um, so I think that's another great perspective. So so let's talk about that for, for a second. You know, if somebody has an elevated LDL, they're following a, a low-carb or keto lifestyle and they want to lower it, there are some tools people can use to try and lower it. The most common that I hear talked about is just switch out your saturated fats for monounsaturated fats, which I think it's talked about as if it's a cure-all. And personally, I don't think that's the case. From my experience, I think it's maybe 50% at best. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I've read posts by you that you say you don't feel that that's a cure-all either. So tell me about your experience with that. Yeah, so I think this is where it helps to refer back to the prior context I mentioned before, if you're a hyper responder, and this isn't always the case, we're speaking in generalities. If you're a hyper responder, you have a pronounced hyper response, it's more likely than not, you are already more likely metabolically healthy in the first place. So you might be one of these Volokh and Finney types for which often they get concerned about having the high LDL and then they find what I consider to be the most, um, straightforward means of managing the hyper response, which is just simply swapping out fat for carbs. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds anathema here, right? But that's, that's the most reliable and the most effective, generally speaking, again, we're speaking in generalities. Uh, it's almost always, almost always, at least of the anecdotes that I get more effective than simply swapping out saturated fat for more MUFAs. Now, I will say that there are some people who really bring up the PUFAs, the polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, to a substantial degree, usually utilizing oils that can get their LDL down a lot while also still being low carb. But I got to be perfectly honest, I'm not super keen on that, especially if it gets into seed oils and so forth. Not that I'm you know, anti-PUFA across the board, but I do think if you're using a lot of refined oils, generally speaking, I'm, I'm not as much of a fan or at least I'm more of a fan of swapping out the fat for carbs instead. Yeah. There are other things like playing more with, say, insoluble fiber. Uh, and of course, I mean, it should always just be said, there's medication. You may find that you meet all of the needs that you want by also deciding that you'd like to take on certain cholesterol-lowering medication. Although I'm very careful to always say I don't recommend going on or off. You need to work with your doctor on that. But if we're just talking about options that are on the table... These are all options on the table. But getting back to that first one, if you're already somebody who's very metabolically healthy, 
And I said this, I think the last time we chatted, and it's stressing you out, like you're very concerned about your high LDL. Uh, I would I would hope this would apply with any diet and any metric of concern that you wouldn't feel so committed to it that you feel in order to be you know part of the crowd that you need to adhere to that right. Um, I I would hope anybody could always feel that their health is their own and their decisions are their own and and please recognize that in in not just the cholesterol code group but and also in all the Facebook groups I'm very proud of how much our environment is very pro-science and I, we try to shy away from advocacy. And so our, our research and our tools are there for people to use in whatever decision they decide to take it to. So we should respect everybody who is not comfortable with their high LDL, even if we're cautiously optimistic and they take steps to lower it. I, I hope my research and everything we have in front of them can help them to accomplish that if that's what they choose to do. Yeah, and again, a wonderful perspective. And, and this is where I think there is quite a big difference between clinicians taking care of patients and citizen scientists or even PhD scientists combing through the literature, that there is a little bit of a disconnect. You know, you have to take that next step to say, boy, here's this patient in front of me. They don't know what to do. And I've got to be honest, I don't know what to do. So what are my options? And and I've talked about this with Dr. Ethan Weiss, and he, and he sees that there's a huge discrepancy between treating physicians and people exploring the literature. And I think we have to be open and honest about that, and that's where your study will certainly help. But that's where these tools come into play, you know, assessing why are you on a keto diet? What other benefits are you getting? Is it worth coming off a keto diet? Does, you know, if you're on 20 grams of carbs, will 75 grams of carbs still give you still maintain all the benefits, but maybe undo some of the LDL concerns until we have more information. You know, these are all thoughts that, that the clinicians have to go through. And your work is certainly helping the clinicians kind of understand that. So I, I think that is a great perspective. Um, and we have a, I have to mention, we have a guide at uh, dietdoctor.com about lowering LDL on a low carb or keto diet. But I think you gave some of the most important, um, the most important factors to consider. Now, there, there are lots of other things that I wanted to get to today, the biggest one, of course, being the study, but that's not all you're working on. You're also working on helping people take control of their health by taking control of their own labs. So it's no secret that if you go to your insurance-based provider and you say, I want an oxidized phospholipid ApoB test, they're going to look at you and say, huh, <laughs> what's that? Or I want a measure of my... Um, my cholesterol synthesis and absorption. They're not going to know what you're talking about. Or even an advanced lipoprotein panel, they may not be able to order it. But So that's where you and Siobhan Huggins have created ownyourlabs.com and um, to let people take control of that. So tell us about what, what you've done there and what people need to know. Well, of course, thanks for the plug of, of sorts. But, but the irony is this actually originated when we were doing the blood testing drives. So you may recall that at a few conferences, we quite literally went through the process of hiring phlebotomists, partnering with uh, doctors in order to get these labs ordered, and then kind of offering a package deal to people so long as they consider opting in their data so that it can be added to our anonymized data pool. Because at the end of the day, our, I guess you could say selfish reason is that we've been wanting to build this open data archive for not just citizen scientists, but citizen researchers. We are strong believers in open science. And this okay. has kind of helped us to accomplish that. Well, 
in time, I was like, you know, we should just go ahead and turn this into a site, just a straight up cart site. There already are others online that do this where you can get a private lab ordering. Uh, you, you, you choose which labs you want. And then uh, there's, there's the setting up of the lab order that you then take to a bricks and mortar place, such as LabCorp. And with that lab order, you then get your blood work done. It gets sent in. And then through the service, it comes back. But I wanted ours to incentivize that sharing of data. And I really didn't want to go into full promotion mode for this until we got the platform just right, which finally happened a few months ago. So right now, just like these other services, you can go through, you can go to our site, you can go to ownerlabs.com. You can then choose these different labs, like the one you're talking about, like say somebody wants to get an advanced uh, lipid subfraction, which is known as an NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance. They can just search, they can search for NMR, they can get it, they can uh, tag it. And then when they get to checkout, there's something special that we have that we hope you'll consider, which is a checkbox that says, would you like to get 10% off in exchange for filling out a little extra demographic information and then allowing that to be put into the, the anonymized data pool. Bear in mind that we remove your first name, last name, uh, your uh, your city, anything else, your date of birth, anything else that could be easily used to help identify you. But your demographic information and your resulting blood work gets added to this data pool, and that will allow, Brett, that'll allow for a lot more capability of research. I'm. This is something I know I get a bit vocal on, but I'm very much a fan of transparency, and I really want there to just be more data, particularly on low carbers, and particularly in the areas of interest we know we have, such as fasting insulin, or even the more esoteric ones that I like, such as free fatty acids. I think that a lot of this data is going to be very meaningful to us. The problem is, is that a lot of times when it's collected in a study, as you well know, it's proprietary. And yeah. you can't just get it. Or you try to write to the authors and maybe they'll let you see it. Maybe they won't. But but I would love for there to just be a large open access database on low carbers with so many of these metrics that we find to be so important. Yeah, I think that was pretty amazing because it, it helps the individual because they can get these lab tests anytime they want. And it helps you promote this open science. Um, one, the concept of it, which a lot of people don't even realize that so much of the data is proprietary and can't be evaluated by third parties. I mean, that's a, a whole big part about some of the statin, da uh, statin data we have that's really frustrating. So you've been very vocal about that. So uh, another area where you're, you're leading the way, um, both with the study you're conducting and now with the labs, which I think is fantastic. Well, I think we've hit on some of the main points about your study, about the labs um, that people have avail available through you. But there's supple, now that I've got you, I don't wanna let you go because there's some other topics that I wanna get into about, about just you know lipids in general and LDL, especially with the hyper-responders. And one thing that's came out recently were a couple papers about the influence of insulin on LDL. And I thought this was so interesting because it was from the perspective basically of insulin resistance, that when insulin is working, um, in the in the liver, it can help to clear LDL. And conversely, when insulin is not working in the liver, that the ability to clear LDL is diminished. I think that's sort of like the simplistic way of thinking about it. But it was from the, the concept of insulin resistance, right? So when someone is insulin resistant in the liver, their LDL receptors are not clearing LDL as well. But the question then becomes, well, what about if the insulin level is low? 
right, with lean mass hyperresponders, because that is one hypothesis that with the hyperresponders, they're doing so well metabolically, the insulin levels are so low, much lower than the general population, that there's a downregulation of LDL receptors. And that's why there's a high overall LDL. So when you saw that paper about insulin resistance and LDL clearance, did that make you think, huh, maybe this other mechanism has more, more legs than I thought it did in terms of, you know, maybe being the alternative to the energy hypothesis? What, or what was your take on that? Actually, I think it fits right into it. So let's let's kind of break this down for a second. What do I want to do? And I think maybe it's easier to start from a fasting perspective. What do I want for my liver to be doing in the circumstance where I'm fasting? Well, in the, in the circumstance where I'm fasting, I'm releasing a lot of fat from my existing stores. After all, I'm not bringing in any from my diet. Therefore, I don't want to clear as many of the lipoproteins that my cells might be making use of, particularly for cargo that might be on board, right? And therefore, there is a, a downregulation, understandably, that comes with the lower insulin, comes with lower leptin levels, and therefore, there's going to be less uptake. But that makes sense because the liver doesn't need to ship out as many of the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. There's already a flooding of these non-esterified fatty acids or free fatty acids being released from my adipocytes that my cells outside of my adipocytes can make use of. And that's good, right? Now, there's a time scale to this. This is kind of in a temporary state. And then there's some other things that will adjust a little bit later. But now let's flip the switch because I think this will make it make a lot more sense. Now let's say we go the other direction. We're doing the Feldman protocol, right? You're now like consuming a huge amount of dietary fat along with marginally higher carbs. So your insulin is definitely higher. Your LDL receptors are definitely more expressed and are now taking up more of the lipoproteins. That's part of why LDL starts to drop with the uh, protocol. But a larger part, I believe, as to why there's a big drop in the Feldman protocol is quite simply, your adipocytes are also up expressing and taking in more of the, um, of the uh, lipoproteins not just VLDL, but also LDL. They need to because their bilayers are made of phospholipids and free cholesterol. So they need to take in more of those lipoproteins to the lysosomes to take them apart because guess what? If you're gonna increase the volume on the inside, you have to increase the surface area on the outside. As you probably know, with biochemistry, you can't just squeeze molecules together and you can't just stretch them apart. In the case of membranes, especially, especially phospholipid membranes, you have to add pieces in order for it to get bigger. Right. And you have to subtract pieces in order for it to get smaller. So insulin is special in that it's doing so many things to so many organs all at the same time. But I definitely keep a close eye on both the liver and the adipose tissue and its part to play, especially with lipids, given the lipids are extremely relevant to that growth. Yeah, that's actually a good point. If you focus too much on the liver, you miss what's going on in the rest of the body. Um, so you got to keep both in mind. So I, I think that was really interesting. And, and I, I, the roles of insulin are fascinating, right? We, it, in medical school, I thought of insulin as controlling blood sugar, period. And that was it. And it's only been through the past you know, so many years journey that I've learned of all these amazing things that insulin does. And again, one of the areas where medical education has fallen short, but hopefully now 
will no longer, um, especially as we talk more about metabolic health and the role of insulin. Another thing to mention in addition to that is insulin can upregulate something known as lipoprotein lipase. That's also one other major clue, especially at the adipocytes. And I even did a recent talk on this. So if you're bringing up insulin, you're not only seeing this higher expression at the liver, but on top of that, you're, not, you're also seeing an increase in this lipoprotein lipase, which is a special enzyme that gets expressed that often return, that uh, creates more of the turnover that you're going to see with lipoproteins, literally lipoprotein lipase, in order to hydrolysize and in many cases uptake them. Yeah, very good. Now, now one last thing to talk about, um, to get off of lipids for a second and talk about blood sugar and insulin a little bit more. When looking at the literature, I think it's safe to say when you go low carb, even if you're low carb, high fat, um, blood sugar and insulin significantly improve. But one question we have is if you are low carb, very high fat versus low, maybe a little bit higher carb and lower fat, what is the relationship there for glucose and insulin? And I'm not sure that the literature explains that with good studies, but I saw your hypocaloric and hypercaloric study where you went hypocaloric for a number of days and then went hypercaloric eating, you know, 4,000 plus calories for a number of days, still low carb. And I think that's the key. You were still low carb, even when you were eating all those calories and in your hypercaloric phase with low carb, eating more calories than you need, your glucose and your insulin both went up. And to me, that sort of raise the flags. Like that's the kind of research I want to see on a broader scale. So I'm curious, like, were you, were you surprised to see that? Did you expect it? And when is the next study with, you know, that you're going to, that you're going to do for this for me? <laughs> not, not at all, not even in the slightest <laughs> amount. And every single time I've done a version of going from hypocaloric, that is to say low calories to hypercaloric, that is to say high calories in a ketogenic ratio. And I should mention a ketogenic ratio because I'm not actually sure if it was technically keto per se, once I actually add up the absolute numbers, mm -hmm. but you, there's a number of things to recognize. Yes. Gluconeogenesis is something I would love if we could tease out in a more specific way, or if there's some blood test that I could feel confident was giving me a measure of its true rate. That's something a lot of people will bring up, but something a lot of people don't bring up is triglycerides, the three fatty acids esterified to triglyceride backbone. Uh, or sorry, to a glycerol backbone, that glycerol is commonly used for gluconeogenesis. So we don't know how much the incoming fat actually results in that amount of the glycerol conversion to gluconeogenesis being part of what is the resulting higher detected levels of glucose. But as always, Brett, and I know I beat this horse to death, I still can't put a lot of stock anyway, into the detected level of glucose or really any energy substrate in the blood without knowing how much is coming into the on-ramp, as it were, alongside yeah. how much is going off the off-ramp. So I bring this up in the case of, for example, lean mass hyperspawners. A commonality with lean mass hyperspawners is they'll be surprised because as they get onto the diet initially, their glucose levels go down. And then so they get surprised because their glucose levels will then start to come back up into like the 90s or even in the low 100s. Mm -hmm. And they presume from that that this is um, putting them in in you know direct way of becoming type 2 diabetic, especially right. if their A1C correspondingly gets to like say 5.5 or 5.6. 
Yet this is very common among lean mass hyperresponders. I think, I, I certainly posit, though it's just a hypothesis, I think this is about one of the strongest indicators of adaptive glucose sparing as a concept that I've ever seen, because likewise, we see with these same lean mass hyperresponders, their insulin is at the floor. They do not yeah. look like typical pathogenic uh, type 2 diabetes. You having treated type 2 diabetics, I know you know this. If you put a CGM on them, a continuous glucose monitor, it's not just that you see a consistent, say, you know, uh, 100 glucose each morning at 8 a.m. It doesn't work like that. Their, their glucose is going up and down. There's a clear dysregulation. Whereas with these lean mass hyperresponders, you put a CGM on them and it's like a, it's like a pond. It's just flat. It's very almost boring. Always, yeah. And almost always the only time you see it like kind of spike up a little bit is with exercise. You get the actual glucose release uh, that comes with exercise. And again, it's a hypothesis, I think. I think we're going to find that no, it's because there's a higher affinity for fatty acids as a proportion in their periphery and more that's spared on the glucose side of the fence, particularly for the obligate cells like the, uh, the red blood cells. I think it's systemic. I, I, I wish more thought was put towards thinking of these things in a systemic fashion than to try to look for the marker of interest and then extrapolate from there. Yeah, one of us, one of the things us engineers get hung up on. <laughs> yeah, well, add that to your list of studies that you need to do to continue to disrupt the way uh, people see medicine and uh, transform how doctors practice. So, I, I want to thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm so excited that we were able to talk about your study, talk about how the funding is done, talk about how you're ready to to hit go and start enrolling people. And I find that just so fascinating and so exciting. And I don't want to wait a year for the results. I want the results tomorrow, but uh, I, I can't wait. <laughs> so again, thank you for the time. Please keep us updated and um, let everybody know where they can find you, where they can learn more about you and about the study. Well, definitely I would mention four places. Cholesterolcode.com, as you mentioned, is sort of our central site. Uh, it's an information hub, particularly around cholesterol and low carb. There's the Citizen Science Foundation. That is our Bonafide 501c3 charity that's actually putting on this study. And then there's, of course, ownyourlabs.com, which you mentioned a little bit later. Uh, but you can also find me more actively on Twitter as Dave Keto, just at Dave Keto. And Brett, I just have to thank you guys once again for uh, helping us get the word out. We definitely want anybody who's listening to this who either might be qualified for the study or who might know somebody who's qualified for the study to please let them know about it because we're now entering the recruitment phase to make this happen. Excellent. I'm very excited. All right. Thanks a lot, Dave. And I can't wait to hear more from you with the results or more updates in the future. Thanks a lot.